Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1. Still on page 1036, if you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table, we're going to finish up chapter 1 today. We did the first half last week, uh, verses 1 through 14. Today's we're in verses 15 through 23. Chapter 1 gives us two major things that, that ought to serve as identifying markers of a Christ-centered, uh, gospel-centered church. And in light of every spiritual blessing we've been given in Christ, we ought to be known as a church that praises God and prays for his people at the sake of, uh, of oversimplifying what this chapter is talking about. It's those two things, that as God's people, we praise him as God and we pray for one another, okay? Uh, and all of that is wrapped around in a, a result of the glorious spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ. We, we praise God continually for his glorious grace, and we pray to God continually for the growth of the saints, right? Because we know that we've been given these things. It's one thing to know it, but it's another thing to experience it. It's another thing to grow in our knowledge of that and in our understanding of that. When you get a, a new a car, Unless you've done all your research beforehand, there's probably some bells and whistles in there that you have to figure out, right? Especially if you've upgraded from an old one. You have to take time and learn what you've gotten into, right? Read the manual, figure these things out, and see all the benefits that you've been given in that. Now, that's a, that's a really uh, subpar analogy, but I hope that that helps us understand a little bit more. We've been given so much, and it takes a long time for us as finite human beings to know the infinite God who's given us these things. And so we need to spend time together uh, digging in, and we need God to help us do that. And so we, we praise God continually for his grace. We, we pray to God continually for the growth of his saints. And in today's passage, we're going to see that praise and prayer, they're not often separated from one another. Paul's going to kind of weave them together well, we, we, we don't even necessarily know. Uh, in the English, it's a little bit easier to, to see. Uh, but in the Greek, it's, it's another um, one long sentence, this verse, or these verses, 15 through 23. And so Paul is just kind of weaving in and out of, of prayer and praise and prayer according to who God is uh, for the saints. And so um, we need to keep in mind that these things flow together. And that it's a con also that it's a continuation of the thought, the flowing thought, uh, the one long sentence of the first 14 verses, or verse 3 through 14, uh, that Paul laid out. And so, so we're still sort of in the same thought that Paul has, has started at the beginning of the, of the letter. And as Paul prays for the believers he's writing to in this letter, he, he uses an abundance of superlatives to emphasize the greatness of the triune God to whom he's praying and to emphasize God's ability to grant what Paul's asking for in prayer. Uh, he wants his readers to know how great this God is that we're praying to. And so if we take today's passage to heart, it's going to grow our desire and our ability to pray for one another as God's people. So I want to read the passage, and then I want to pray for the Spirit to help us understand it, and then we'll dig in. So Ephesians 1, starting at verse 15. This will sound familiar to the Colossians passage I just read for our prayer. 
This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus, we thank you that uh, you have given us a way to know the Father. And Spirit, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts, illumine our minds, give us spiritual wisdom and insight to know the God who saved us through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you found it difficult to pray in 2020? Some of you are saying no, and I need you to pray for me. I have times. I have times where, where it's easy to pray for something, and then there's times where it just feels like you're praying for the same thing over and over and over. You, you know how you, like, uh, we all have seasons. Take 2020 out of it, but our whole life in following Jesus there are times when our prayer life just feels sort of stale or stagnant, where we feel like we're just, we're just praying for the same thing over and over. Or we don't even know how to express what, we, what we're asking God for, right? But we need to understand that any prayer to our God is better than no prayer to our God, right? God doesn't need flowery language. He doesn't need lengthy prayers. He wants us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Now, sometimes we pray for one another without keeping in mind all that we've been given in Christ, right? It's one thing to share a prayer request and then just kind of focus on, on the immediate need. And, and that's typically what happens when we forget all that we've been given, when we forget the baseline of our, of our prayer. We tend then to, to be reactionary to the temporary things immediately in front of us rather than in response to the eternal promises that lead us to pray or, or that lead us through those temporary things. And so, yes, we need to pray specifically for one another. Yes, we need to, to ask God to help us in those, in those uh, life circumstances. But underneath all of that is this deeper, more, more uh, central and, and more, I'll, I'll say basic, but that doesn't mean it's, it's less. It just means it's foundational. Prayer. That, that from that foundation, we pray in specific ways for all of these other things. And so because God has given every believer every spiritual blessing in Christ, we ought to pray for every believer to experience those blessings in a deeper way. That should be our general mindset of prayer for one another. And, and then as we pray specifically for one another, that we experience those blessings specifically in those things. Make sense? 
As a church, we should be marked by prayer, as a people of prayer. And we know what we should pray for, we, we, but we, we don't know, or, or, but how should we pray for it? And this morning in our passage, we're going to see that we, we pray with thankfulness, with dependence, and with confidence, regardless of the circumstance, because these things aren't rooted in our circumstances, they're rooted in the God who controls our circumstances. Let's look at verse 15 and 16 again. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Verse 15 begins with the phrase, this is why. Your translation might say, uh, therefore, or, or because. There's a reason that Paul never stops giving thanks for these believers as he remembers them in his prayers, and it's not because he's heard about their faith. It's because he knows that God has produced that faith in them by giving them every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Take all the glorious truths that he's just laid out in verses 3 through 14. They've been chosen and loved by God before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. They were predestined to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. They have redemption through Christ's blood and the forgiveness of their trespasses. The mystery of God's plan of redemption has been revealed to them through Christ. They've been brought together in Christ according to that plan of redemption. They've received an inheritance. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of their inheritance until they're able to receive that inheritance in full. And all of this is done according to God's good pleasure. And according to God's will, the good pleasure of his will, Paul says, this is why. Take all of that last giant sentence in the Greek, verse 3 through 14, and Paul says, because of this. Since I heard about your faith, with that as the foundation, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Their love for God and love for others is evidence that God has given them every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And that Paul is thankful to God for giving them those blessings. Paul is rejoicing that his labor has not been in vain. If, if you, if you uh, were able to read Acts chapter 19 and 20 to get some of the background behind Paul's relationship with the church in Ephesus, you know that he spent three years there preaching the gospel and strengthening the church. He wrote this letter probably around... Uh, somewhere up to five years after he left, okay? And now he's heard about faith of, of people he hasn't even met because the gospel keeps going. It keeps spreading. It keeps doing uh, its work and producing fruit in, in the lives of others in the Ephesian church and also in the surrounding area around there. Churches Paul maybe probably never got to visit even. And yet here he is in a prison in Rome hearing about their faith, and he's rejoicing because it's fruit, it's evidence of God's salvation work in their hearts. Their love for God and love for others is evidence of God's salvation for them. We too ought to rejoice whenever we hear the fruit of, of the fruit of the gospel in the lives of others, whether they're here at Redeemer Community Church or or they're in another church in our community or in the, another church in the country or in another church across the world. As we go through Ephesians, we're going we're gonna to apply a lot of this to our, our local gathering right here as a body of Christ. 
But everything that's true for us as a local gathering is true for us as a universal body. It's just expressed most clearly in the gathering of a local body. And so we ought to rejoice when we hear of others trusting in Jesus and loving God and loving people. The love God, the, the love God has for us produces love for God and for others in us. The love of God for us produces love for God and love for others in us. When we remember that, it'll change the way that we pray for one another, especially and importantly when we come into conflict with one another. Are you thankful for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have disagreements with? Do you think of them first as those for whom Christ has died? If he shed his own blood for them, how does that help you then to pray for them when you're in conflict with them? Now, to be sure, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus actually is one. There are things that we can disagree on. There's things that we can differ on in our understanding of, but the gospel is not one of those things. This is why it's important that we commit ourselves, again, to the local gathering, the local body of Christ, so that we can be near each other enough, and, and, and to use Paul Tripp's words, intentionally intrusive in each other's lives, so that we can see the root of the gospel producing fruit of the gospel in our lives. And continue to grow together. But even when we do that, it can be tempting to think that we are more faithful than the person next to us when we see them as immature or we disagree with them on a particular teaching. And when that happens, then we're in danger of taking credit for our own spiritual growth rather than remembering that God is alone is the one who grows us. Are you thankful for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you treat them as brothers and sisters until they give you reason to do otherwise? How would we approach conflict with one another differently if we remembered first one another in our prayers with gratitude to God for the work he's done and continues to do in our lives? How would it help us see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ who share in every spiritual blessing rather than opponents who compete for them? We need to pray with thankfulness to God for his work that we see in others, and we need to pray with dependence upon God to continue that work. Look at verse 17. I pray that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Paul is thankful that God has given the Ephesian believers every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. God hold, withholds no good thing from those who believe in him. Every spiritual blessing, I get them and you get them if we're in Christ. Now Paul asks God to help them experience the, the, these are heavenly realities, right? That they're, they're, he says that every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. But, but we need to experience them here in our earthly lives, and that's what Paul asks God to help them do, to experience the earthly realities of those blessings in a deeper way. Notice that the Trinity, again, shows up in verse 17. We talked about this last week. 
one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you notice Paul's wording here. It says that the, the God, the glorious Father, he calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's not denying that Jesus is God. In doing that, Paul is affirming that Jesus is also man. And that, uh, which as we know from Mark's gospel, is necessary in order for him to give his life as a ransom for many. One God, three persons, but when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, we also have to say he's fully God and fully man. These are truths that we will try to wrestle down for the rest of our earthly lives and we'll only know them in their fullness when we see Jesus face to face as the God-man. But they're true nonetheless. So Paul is not separating Jesus from God himself. He is God. What about the Holy Spirit, though? Didn't Paul already pray or already say in verse 13 that these believers have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of wisdom? And, or, and then here in verse 17, now he's asking that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So which is it? Which, which one? Do they have the Holy Spirit or don't they? They do. Every believer is given the Holy Spirit at the, at the moment of conversion. And when they hear the gospel and they believe it and they put their trust in Jesus, that's clear from verse 13. You're sealed with the Spirit the moment you're converted. But here in verse 17, Paul isn't asking God to give them a different spirit, but a deeper understanding through the Spirit that they've already been given. His emphasis is on the wisdom and revelation that the Holy Spirit gives to us as believers so that we can grow in our knowledge of God. Another way to say this would be, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the wisdom and the revelation of the Spirit in the knowledge of Him. Same Spirit that seals us but then gives us insight as well. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12 Paul again wrote that letter and he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. This is the verse right here that we can all take great joy in. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. This is Paul's prayer here. Lord, help them understand what they've been freely given. Now we need to clarify the difference between revelation and illumination here. Okay? When Paul asks for revelation in verse 17, he's asking God to give them spiritual understanding of spiritual realities. That's what he means in verse 18 by asking that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. The picture is, is one of, of flooding a dark place with light so that you can clearly see all that's already in there. So if this room was pitch black and I grabbed a spotlight and I started shining it around, we'd see each other. We'd see what's already in this room. That light doesn't put anything new in the room. It simply reveals what's been hidden in the dark. 
So we need to understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us new revelation. Instead, he illuminates what is already there like a spotlight in the dark. And so if someone tells you that they have a new word from God, you can be confident that God has already given you all of the words that you need to know right here in his word. Everything God wants us to know is already in there. The Holy Spirit won't reveal anything that Scripture hasn't already revealed, but the Holy Spirit does help us understand what He has revealed in Scripture by enlightening the eyes of our hearts so that we can see it as God intended it to be seen, and we can grow in our knowledge of Him. So what is Paul asking the Spirit to shed light on here? He tells us in Verse 18 and 19, he's praying for the Spirit to enable his readers to understand three things. What is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Boy, those sound like good things, don't they? I kind of want to know more. The hope that Paul prays for in verse 18 is not wishful thinking like I hope it's going to snow for Christmas or I hope the Bears will win the Super Bowl again okay it's hope that's tied to the call of salvation from God to his people this this hope that Paul is talking about is this joyful and this confident expectation that God will fulfill all that he has called us to in Christ from our initial salvation through faith to our sanctification between here and eternity to our ultimate and final glorification in the day of the Lord when Christ returns. There are an abundance of things that test our patience and sap our endurance and attempt to rob us of our joy, aren't there? 2020 has made that abundantly clear and made that a difficult reality for any of us to deny. But as Christians, we have joyful confidence It doesn't mean that we go around whistling and handing out flowers and things like that. It's deeper than that. We can be weeping and still have joy. We have joyful confidence, a.k.a. hope in the guaranteed fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. And that hope sustains us then for the long haul. We need to have a long haul view. We need to have a long haul view. We also need to have a day-to-day view. But that only is helpful if we have the long haul view. Romans 2, or Romans 5, 2 through 5. Again, Paul, we've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. This is good hope. Paul says, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through what? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has given us his spirit to anchor our hope to his son and give us joy and confidence in the reality that the Father will fulfill every last one of his promises in Christ. This is hope. We don't know what 2021 will hold. I'm sure that we're all praying that it's not like 20, 
2020 and that it's better than 2020 and not worse. But regardless of what happens, we can know that whatever we experience in the next year, whatever we experience this afternoon, whatever we experience in the next week, a decade from now, the Holy Spirit will enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is the hope of God's calling in the midst of those things. Paul also wants his readers to know what is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we need to understand that the inheritance goes both ways here. And this is what's reflective here. Not only are we given an an inheritance through Christ, but we're also given as an inheritance to Christ in richly blessing us through his son. God has made us a rich blessing for his son. You hear that and you go, that can't be, right? That's, That's too good to be true. What, what would he need us for? First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The fact that God would delight in us as his own people only serves to magnify the mercy and the grace that he's given to us through Christ. We are completely unworthy of this. And yet in love, God has chosen us as a rich and precious possession for himself. God, the God who has all the riches of the entire universe at his disposal has placed the greatest worth in his people. Not because we are rich in and of ourselves, but because in his rich love for us, hear this, God truly and deeply treasures us. This is amazing. This is, this, that alone, it, it will take the rest of our lives to reconcile. And I, it'll only be God's grace to help us do that. When I consider the depth of my sin and the wickedness that resides in my own heart and the things that I have to bring to the Lord, It's easy to go, why would he ever want to treasure me? But it's not because of me, it's because of him. God treasures us because God treasures us. And he loves us. And he's chosen us for himself. God delights in you, believer. God delights in us as the church. This means that no matter how much we're mistreated and demeaned by others, we need never doubt the dignity and worth that God has given to us in Christ. We're not some prize collection of toys that he plays with and then discards and then grows when he grows tired of us. We're not some pieces of property that he abuses and uses for for whatever he wants like some callous and cold-hearted slave owner. That's not what it means to be his possession. We've been adopted in love by the heavenly father as his children. He's placed his seal of ownership of of familial uh, uh, membership on us through his spirit we're permanently his as God's one and only son Jesus is gaining brothers and sisters as his inheritance from the father and as brothers and sisters we are gaining Christ himself God's one and only son as our inheritance from the father I am his and he is mine 
That is what every believer in Christ can proudly declare. That we can say with confidence. That means that we should never underestimate the value that we now have in Christ. But we also need to hear this. It means that we should also never overestimate it either. I must remember that I am one of many that are being given to Christ. I am part of the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, not the entirety of it. I need to remember that it's a wealth. It's a rich abundance. God, listen, have you ever just stopped and thought about, I mean, there's like 8 billion people on this planet right now. And that's just in our time. I can't even comprehend the number of people over the course of history that have been on this planet. And from that ridiculously large group of people, God is gathering and has gathered for himself a rich abundance. He has saved and will save more people for himself than I have the capacity to comprehend. This is a God who saves. And I need to remember that it's a glorious inheritance. The fact that God has saved any at all reminds us that the reason he saved us is so that, as Peter puts it, we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Or as Paul puts it here, for the praise of his glorious grace. And again, this will help you be thankful for that brother or sister in Christ whom you may be in conflict with. When you're able to view him or her as a part of the wealth of Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints, you'll be quicker to pursue reconciliation with that brother or sister rather than separation with him or her. The third thing that Paul prays for his readers to know in verse 19 is this. What is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? This is, Paul strings just a, a ridiculous number of superlatives here to get his point across. Essentially, he prays for his readers to know what is the exceeding exceedingness of God's capability to do something on our behalf governed by the governing governance of, of his ability to get it done. In other words, nothing is going to stop God from providing all that we need because he's more powerful than everything else. This is what Paul is saying. It's one thing to know that to be true. It's another thing to experience the reality of it. And so Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would help his readers know that truth experientially. It takes the power of God in order for us to know the power of God. And so we must pray with dependence upon God to make it known. But we also ought to pray with confidence because God has already shown us the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us in Christ. Look at verse 20. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The very same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work on behalf of all who believe. I'm sure you've heard that somewhere along the way. That's a hard thing to grasp. 
That's a hard thing to grasp, but it's true. The immeasurable greatness of God's power was shown to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but it's also displayed in his current position as he's seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. When Paul came to Ephesus, the people there were fascinated with magic and the occult. Many of them worshipped a lot of gods and goddesses, and especially the goddess Artemis. They called her the queen of heaven. And Paul says here that the throne belongs to Jesus Christ. He alone is seated at the right hand of God in the heavens in the prominent position of honor and power. Jesus is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given. Paul's emphasis in verse 21, stringing these things together, is on Jesus' authority over every supernatural force since that's the emphasis in Ephesians, or in the Ephesian, uh, or in Ephesus, excuse me, through the occult. But if Jesus rules over everything unseen, then he must rule over everything seen, right? Every title given, that phrase there literally means every name named. And Jesus is far above them all. In Philippians, again, Paul. Chapter 2 says that God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name named. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's not a single natural or supernatural being that can hold a position of authority greater than Jesus Christ himself. We can be sure of this. As individual believers and as a church, we need to be sure of this. We have to be confident in this truth. Jesus Christ is firmly and eternally seated on the throne, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He rules now and he'll rule forever. And he'll never be dethroned because he's conquered even death itself. In Christ's resurrection and exaltation, we see clearly the power of God that is available to us as believers Because Christ is alive and exalted, we can't lose. He conquered sin and death so that we could be forgiven and resurrected to eternal life with him. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll never experience loss, right? Again, 2020 has made that abundantly clear. But it does mean that Jesus is sovereignly and lovingly ruling over those times of loss on our behalf and for our good. And for his glory. And that's because the Father has subjected everything under the Son's feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. In appointing Jesus as the head of the church, he gave Christ to the church. He appointed him to a position, but he gave that that position. He gave him in that position to us as a gift. Jesus is a gift to us, and so is his headship over us. Christ's exalted position is for the benefit of the church. He represents us before God and he governs the universe for our good. He uses his authority to serve and to strengthen his body for his own glory. This is why his church has been preserved throughout every generation since it began. And this is why it'll continue to be preserved long after our lives are over on this earth. Redeemer Community Church may come and go in Menunk, but the universal church of our Redeemer who is the head will remain forever. 
And I'm perfectly fine with that. Because Christ is the head and we are his body. And he sustains us and he governs us by his power and for his own glory. In verse 23, Paul says that the church as Christ's body is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That doesn't mean that Christ himself lacks something that needs to be filled by the church. It means that the church is filled by Christ as the central expression of his authority and presence in the universe. The most beautiful and, and the most uh, and the clearest picture of who Jesus is is demonstrated in his church. As God filled the temple with his glory in the old covenant, now Christ fills the church with his glory in the new covenant. And as his church, we make his glory known to the world. We'll see that at the end of chapter 3. Christ fills all things in every way. There is nowhere and no one and no thing that isn't under his sovereign rule and authority. 2020 doesn't get a pass from Jesus. And everywhere and everyone and everything finds its fullness in Christ and Christ alone. That's it. So we can pray confidently for one another no matter what we face because Christ rules over it and he rules over us for our good. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead and exalted him to God's right hand is the same power that God makes available to his church through his spirit. I hope that we remember this and that we remind each other of it often when we feel stuck, when we feel weak, weary, drained, lost, broken, alone, rejected, frustrated, disappointed, burdened, afflicted, anxious, impatient, angry, when we feel overpowered by the sinful world when we feel overpowered by our own sinful flesh, when we feel overpowered by the spiritual enemy himself. May we be confident in the immeasurable greatness of God's power in Christ to provide what we need when we need it so that we can overcome those things. Our circumstances might not change. But God will certainly act on our behalf. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. But those blessings aren't just heavenly realities. They're realities that we can experience in the here and now. They're realities that we are meant to experience in the here and now. And so as God's people, we ought to pray for one another to experience those realities in an ever-deepening way. We ought to thank God for the evidence of those realities that we see in one another. We ought to depend on God to enlighten our hearts to know him better through those realities. And we ought to pray with confidence that God has the power and ability to grant what we ask according to those realities. Let's be a church that's marked not only by the praise of our Savior, but by the prayer for the saints. By ongoing prayer for one another as we experience together every spiritual blessing we've been given in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
We thank you for indwelling us through your spirit, guiding us with your word, growing us with your church. And we ask this morning that as we grow together, you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope of your calling, what is the wealth of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of your strength. We pray this in the name of Jesus who's given us and granted us these things. Amen.